Welcome to History Lab. I'm your host, Anna Clark. This season on History Lab, a series of audio stories that go behind the scenes of Darlinghurst's diverse history. This is Lost Waterways, produced by Catherine Franey. Running from the shores of Rushcutters Bay is Barkham Glen, and flowing through it is a stream, a beautiful running creek of pure, clear water. It's almost actually when you stand here, you can almost feel that creek, can't you? Looking back up to Oxford Street. Just the way that that van is veering around that little corner, it just feels like it might be following the flow, original flow of the creek. Our old people talked about a freshwater channel system under our part of our country and and it's all connected. My name is Ray Ingray, I'm the chairman of the Gujaga Foundation. My community is the Lapra's Aboriginal community. My connection to coastal Sydney, including Rushcutters Bay and Darlinghurst, is that it's an area that it's included in our overall cultural area. My name's Saskia Schutz. I'm a landscape architect. I've been really interested in the stream network that was part of Darlinghurst and Paddington and the way that the streams have historically been straightened or placed underground. And I live just near Rushcutters Creek and Rushcutters Bay, so it's been something that I've been daily watching. The eastern suburbs was a barren place to be and so those waterway systems that you find at places like Darlinghurst and Rushcutters Bay and stuff are important places for our people because there was fresh water, there was a lot of food source around that fresh water system and a lot of those gullies created a bit of a safe haven from the weather. So for our old people they were ideal places to live. I think the creek might have even originally run through there. See how there's a little dip? Interesting. Should we slip through? Our old people had an ongoing presence here before government intervened in, in 1883 with the establishment of the Aboriginal Protection Board. And so our people were still moving freely in and around their country just like their parents and their grandparents did before them. My grandmother's grandmother was a lady by the name of Kate Sims. She lived in Aboriginal camps along Sydney Harbour. She would live at places like Double Bay and Rushcutters Bay and where the Opera House is today in the mid to late 1800s. The Memoirs of Obed West. 1882. Adjoining Elizabeth Bay is Rushcutters Bay. The Aboriginal name for Rushcutters Bay was Cogora. Running from the shores of Rushcutters Bay is Barkham Glen, and flowing through it is a stream 
now dirty and miserable looking, but which was, at one time, a beautiful running creek of pure, clear water. The estate was granted to my father, Thomas West, for the erection of a watermill, the first one established in Australia. I'm Mark Dunn, I'm a historian, and we are currently standing in Stream Street, which is a small inner city street in Darlinghurst that runs between Stanley Lane and Eurong Lane behind the Australian Museum. Stream Street is named because it runs on top of what was one of the natural watercourses that ran down off the heights of Darlinghurst towards the harbour and was one of the colonial water sources for the city. It was covered over in a drain and then the street in about the 1870s but the interesting thing is that the street still follows the course of the stream. We're now crossing over to Boundary Street and we're going to follow that down and we're just trying to see whether there are drains here that would indicate that that's where the channel is following. I do feel like the original creek lines between Boundary Street and Barkham Avenue. In the early colonial period and for the Aboriginal people of Sydney, the natural watercourses had been sources of fresh water and food. But by the 1840s and 50s, they, almost all of them were being used as a drain and a sewer. So they had gone from being sort of these pristine waterways to being health hazards. And the way that that was dealt with in the 19th century was through the engineering of these places. So it would be covered over to stop the spread of disease, to hide away that kind of sewer. And it was turned into a sewer, literally. Once it's covered over, then of course you can also put a, a road over the top of it. But the interesting thing here is they didn't just straighten it straight through, they actually followed that. And that probably reflects the fact that this was a very densely populated and urban setting by the 1870s, but because the stream had been left open, the subdivisions around here that had created the buildings had worked right up to the edge of the stream. So Stream Street now is very much a back lane of Darlinghurst, and it's a very evocative space that reflects that sort of the city before the city, if you like, the natural city, yeah. So interesting, though. So these houses feel like they've been built in the creek bed. So we're just looking um, into the back end of a house. They're obviously doing some big renovations and we're looking at the floor and it almost looks like channels. I reckon they'd have to do some pretty fancy water drainage in that house. That's literally at the bottom of a creek bed. In Dharawal language, we have different types of water sources. We either have Banarang or Banabi, and so they refer, Banabi refers to a spring source, and Banarang refers to a above ground water system. About 200 yards from the mill was a large swamp which could not be crossed. It swarmed with aquatic birds of every description, redbills, waterhens, bitterns, quail, all kinds of ducks. The head of the swamp was a great resort for dingoes. I have killed numbers of them 
and often in daylight when the day was dull. I have seen them come up, up to my very door, and take the poultry. If you look at where any Chinese market gardens took place, it was obviously areas which were flat and had access to water. In the area we're looking at, backing onto Rushcutters Bay, that flat, low-lying area would have been quite suitable. But this was also quite common. There were market gardens all over Sydney. I'm Daphne Lo Kelly. My grandfather, Jung Mong Ying, in the 1890s, he came to Australia and he actually was working as a market gardener in the Camden district. They were growing food for the Australian population, lettuces, cauliflowers, tomatoes, cabbages, pumpkins, potatoes. Unfortunately, the Chinese were not that welcome, right? They were blamed for the fact that the area was unhealthy, that the area had terrible odours. Now, I don't think this was all the responsibility of the Chinese because you've also got to remember that the sewerage and the stormwater flowed out here. So now where we are, we're standing almost under New South Head Road looking at the Rushcutters Bay stormwater channel running under the road and back into the playing fields. The actual channel works its way back underground much further up into the valley and then it picks up all of the eastern side of the Darlinghurst Escarpment. So I'm Phil Bennett and I'm Sydney Waters Heritage Advisor. So the channel was formalised in about, I think, 1882. And the whole idea is that the sewerage was draining naturally from the ridge up by Darlinghurst down Rushcutters Creek. And then, because it was stagnant and polluted and smelling and a disease problem, they decided to concrete it and straighten it. And that's so that it flushes really quickly. And this one, like quite a few in the harbour, are tidal, so you get the flush up them. And that actually helped because the water going up them then sort of washes them with salty harbour water. Slowly the sewerage was taken out of the channels. We build the pumping stations. It intercepts the sewerage flowing into these stormwater channels, into these old creek lines. So that allows the stormwater channels then really just to be picking up stormwater. And that's really cleaned up the world, which is now leading to the idea that we might naturalise some of these stormwater drains. Proper naturalisation here would mean turning the whole of Rushcutters Bay Park back into a natural wetland. Now, we can't do that because it's all the playing fields and all the public use. But we would probably try and soften the edges, try and make it more habitat friendly so the birds could get down into the water. Some overflow ponds where you might get crab habitat. But we have to be mindful that even when we naturalise or beautify, that we don't lose the story that it was actually a well-flushing sewer. A few mornings I've woken up fairly early and walked down to Rush Cutters and noticed that there was fog. It hovers above both sides of the canal and for me it's like a ghost of the original Rush Cutters Bay, you know, before it was walled and a canal was built. And for me it's really nice to kind of notice 
those moments. They say a lot about the systems that want to be, that want to speak, that want to still thrive despite all the development. Yeah, I guess it sort of connects you with that sense of it's of the creek's history and liveliness. A beautiful running creek of pure, clear water. You've been listening to Lost Waterways, the first of six Darlinghurst audio stories, a History Lab series produced by Catherine Franey, who's here with me now. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Anna. In this episode, we get such a strong sense of Darlinghurst's history over time. What's it like to time travel as an audio producer? I think it's one of the great rewards of being an audio producer, particularly if you're you know, historically inclined, which I am because it's so possible to conjure the past through the use of sound. So in this story, I guess, we're also reading the landscape in the present moment to find those traces of the past. And so to then play with this idea of a threshold between the present and the past by way of sound, by bringing in sources like, for example, the reading from Obed West Mm -hmm. And the music signature, which kind of takes us out of the hustle and bustle of Darlinghurst in the present moment and into this verdant place that it once was. So all of those sorts of transitions are very available um, Mm. when you're working with audio as a medium. And it's exciting as a historian. Mm. I mean, when you're writing, you need to conjure all of that with words, but there's wonderfully seductive ways that you can do that with sound. And I I love working like that. Yeah, it is utterly transporting. And what's also really interesting for me as a fellow historian, but I don't have any expertise in audio is how do you do place through audio? Here we are with this series of Darlinghurst audio stories. But and yet, you know, listening to Lost Waterways, I was absolutely there in Darlinghurst. Yeah, it's quite immersive, isn't it? And I suppose if it's working, it leaves the listener with a sense of having had an experience themselves, which then stays with them. And that's sort of what I'm aiming to do. How do I go about doing it? Um, I mean, I think with location-based storytelling, you know, you want to be doing site-based recordings. And so we heard in Lost Waterways interviews that I did, you know, so, for example, with Saskia Schutt, like Mm. actually walking on site in Mm. Darlinghurst, which is full of challenges because there's lots of extraneous noise that's actually quite difficult to edit around. But the payoff is that it really does convey a sense of place. And then, of course, you can increase that. You can sort of bump that up a bit by laying in some spot effects, you know, in post-production. So, you look, this is about using music and sound effects and it's also about engaging the skills of an incredible sound engineer and that's Judy Rapley who, who mixed all of this series of stories, bringing great skill and sensitivity. So, yeah, look, I think that's one of the most magical things about audio storytelling, that ability to actually uh, take the listener somewhere. This isn't a chapter in a book, it's not a journal article, and yet you have produced a really beautiful environmental history of changing landscapes and disappearing landscapes, an environmental tale which is very familiar to listeners outside Sydney as well as those of us who are in Sydney. But it also, you know, it sort of has this hopeful edge which is 
the clues are there, the threads are there, the trickle of water is there if we're listening. That's right, yeah. And it's so interesting that Sydney water are actually, I mean, they call it very naturalising, certain canals. There's another one in Annandale in Sydney, Johnson's Creek. And so these initiatives are interesting. I mean, it's just a reflection, I guess, of the different values that Mm. emerge as a city's life extends and as different values around environmental preservation wax and wane. And different values about what history is, if you're thinking about these waterways as a sort of archive. That's right, yeah. So that's precisely what, what I've set out to do here, to sort of think about these waterways as clues and connections to a past and all of the different kinds of uses that have been made of them over the past, you know, several hundred years. The full series of Listen to Darlinghurst is available in the History Lab feed via your favourite podcatcher. Listen to Darlinghurst is a production of the Australian Centre for Public History in partnership with the Paul Ramsey Foundation. The sound engineer is Judy Rapley, Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Britta Jorgensen and Sarah Gilbert at Impact Studios UTS. History Lab is made on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose land was never ceded. I'm Anna Clark. Catch you next time.